This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. your favorite thing about road trips being done with them mostly <laughs> i did i just drove like three and a half hours today which isn't which isn't anything in the in the like realm of road trips but it's also about as long as i can drive without getting bored yeah okay because like, i can't like i'm not good at saving up like a podcast reservoir because mm-hmm. i've already worked out like times to listen to those throughout the course of my regular week mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so otherwise it's just like driving yeah i also feel like on the east coast we're a little spoiled for how close together things are so like that three hour jaunt feels like a lot i talk to people from the midwest and they're like oh yeah i'm just going over, i'm just going shopping it's like three and a half hours away i'm just gonna go buy a pair of pants well there won't be any traffic nope <laughs> And it'll be super easy to find food and gas the whole time. <laughs> and it'll all be delicious and filled with butter anyway. So, yeah. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we are here to talk about books that one of us should have read by now. Uh, Andrew, this week we're talking about what? What are we talking about? We're talking about The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. That's who it's by. Did you know... Did you know hmm? that the Disney movie is only very loosely based on this story? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I think I knew that. I, my only two experiences with this story, aside from just yelling sanctuary all the time, mm-hmm. um, that's just a thing that you do. Right. Uh, like is, when I get home. <laughs> don't touch me, sanctuary. I just yell sanctuary. <laughs> uh, is that Disney movie... And a summer camp I worked at a couple years ago where some kids did a really weird version of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. They, like, wrote it themselves, and the Hunchback was a giant, terrifying puppet. It was weird. But, yeah, I remember that Disney movie as, like, part of the late 90s decline of the animation department. Yeah, like, the mid-ish 90s. Like, it was pretty close to the beginning of it. I yeah, think it was like after Hercules. it was like after Pocahontas and before like Tarzan and Hercules, if I remember correctly. And I know we went to see it, mm-hmm. and I don't remember like I haven't seen it since I saw it in theaters. Yeah, during I have original either. run. So yeah, I don't know, <laughs> but I don't. I just I don't remember everyone dying at the end. So <laughs> I think that one could safely say that it, it and the the book are not the same how many singing gargoyles are there in victor hugo's novel there are none singing gargoyles interesting he diverted from the disney film i mm-hmm. see uh so last source material. uh so for listeners who are just joining us what um you should go check out last just week's- tuning in <laughs> check your podcast app because that shouldn't be how it works this is uh this is overdue uh we're talking to andrew cunningham here who read uh victor hugo's the hunchback of notre dame um, and last week we talked about his book Les Miserables, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, where we talked it's about a good pronunciation yeah victor hugo who is a 19th century novelist having twitter pronunciation police just makes me feel like more justified in mispronouncing things because i know yeah. somebody's gonna fix it i know and part of it is we don't uh i it would take up a lot of airtime to every time i say something in another language especially french and i like purposefully say it extra bad mm-hmm. like i can't say that caveat every time i like, will like if if there's a character's name who i'm i'm gonna have to say like a million times and i'm not sure how to pronounce it i will look it up that's very noble of you otherwise i don't do a lot of pronunciation research <laughs> uh so we talked about him a little bit last week uh and his kind of his championing of the poor and his thoughts on religion and politics uh the fact that this was like his first breakout book mm-hmm. um one of the other topics of conversation that came up last week because of les miserables was poverty and the poor and that book's depiction of it almost to you know a century and a half ago and how we're dealing with it today and we got a couple good emails in a lot of there was a lot of good sure chatter did. on our facebook page but i know you wanted to talk about some of the emails we got in do you want to start with Catherine's maybe um, sure. Yeah. If you remember, if you'll remember, if you listened all the way to the end last week, <laughs> and I, I don't know if you did, but, um, we closed by just having a, a conversation about poverty in our lives, like such as it is and like how we notice it and how we interact with it or don't. It was, it was a tough conversation because a lot of the time, you know, the answer is, you know, sometimes you ignore it and then other times you don't know if what you're doing is actually helping. And um, Catherine sent in this email and she she said a lot of great things in it, but there's one sentence toward the end that I think sums it up and like really addresses some of the stuff we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, She says, confronting and naming your privilege is a good start and admitting that you are sometimes overwhelmed by the world's pain is normal, I think. Just as long as you can see injustice and find ways to correct it, it doesn't matter the scale of the correction. It could be as simple as finding out where the nearest shelter is and offering to take someone there on a cold night. And... um, and yeah, that was that was one of the big things is like if you give somebody a piece of pizza or something, you're you're not it doesn't feel like you're making any any progress on like the long term problem. But, you know, that's that it still is helpful. Yeah. To, was, to do that sort of thing. Yeah. We got another email in from Amanda who works with uh people who have mental illness and, and have issues with homelessness and poverty. And she was saying that even though she works with poverty daily, uh, she, I too don't know how to pr- address poverty when I see it personally, she says. I help people every day find resources and the support they need for a variety of problems. But when I see a person standing with a sign at the exit ramp to the interstate, I look away. And I think she then goes on to say that like part of that is the immediate action there doesn't feel like it's solving a problem doesn't feel like it's creating long-term change so it's yeah. harder to to feel like you're having an impact on that one well and then a lot of the times know. with that sort of stuff like you'll hear or you'll read one story about how somebody was faking it and you'll just yeah. be like well i don't know if he's faking it or not so i'm just gonna ignore all of them yeah which is not helpful <laughs> yeah she also uh just brought up two other interesting points one is the idea of like leaving your children when uh F- fantine leaves her daughter with those innkeepers. Uh, And that's a thing that Amanda says she sees in her line of work where people kind of have a network of other people that they are able to leave 
their children with in the event that they are raising them on their own and have to go work or have you know are finding ways to scrape together money um, and have a, you know a network of relatives or whoever it may be or different shelters. Um, and then the other, she asked a question about this depiction of poverty in Les Mis versus uh, a depiction of poverty in Winter's Bone, which is a book that we that I think I read for the show a while ago. Um, about rural poverty and the us versus them mentality where like the families in this Appalachian community or the, oh, excuse me, the Ozark community um, are like taking care of one another, but they don't want to deal with the police kind of thing. And you don't, it's like your, your problems are your problems and you don't go out and share them with everybody. Yeah. The, there isn't quite an analog to that in Les Mis, if only because it's an primarily it's an urban poor that are, part of a very distinct ecosystem that Hugo is trying to point out and uh, like, I don't know, shine a light on in, in an attempt to affect change. You do see like Jean Valjean looking after people and Fantine has a couple of people who show her the ropes, but a lot of it's, it's this place where the impoverished and the disenfranchised end up, you know, it boils over into revolution. Um, as we talked about the 15 revolutions that France went through last week. <laughs> so there there are some commonalities, but that's not the crux of what Hugo's up to, sure. I and think, then, anyway. And one of the other things that, that Catherine mentioned was just, like, the different forms that poverty can take. Like, I think we focused mostly on, like, homelessness and extreme poverty, but um, Catherine also talks a lot about, like, working class yeah. poverty, which is the sort of paycheck-to-paycheck thing. Like, you have a home, you have food— but there's not a lot of security there. You don't mm-hmm. you don't feel like you can do a lot of like extras and things. And it's just, you know, you're muddling along and hoping maybe someday that you can kind of break out of that cycle and just having a hard time doing it, which is its own, which is a little bit, I think, closer to what you and I have yeah, more direct experience with, especially mm-hmm. like growing up. Yeah, certainly. Um, that's that's definitely a thing that I, I I don't even know the full extent to which I may or may not have experienced that. It you know like what financial difficulties I know my mom did go through, and I'm sure plenty that I did not know she went through. Yeah, I have I have individual memories of my dad. I think especially trying to talk to me about this stuff. Like there's one really early. I mean, I was I was really young and to be clear my dad was also really young like he he was younger than i am now when, when this he was had happening. you yeah, yeah, yeah and i mean they were they were like 20 or 21 mm-hmm. when they had me and, and i was like five five six maybe when this happened but like i had some 50 dollars savings bond or something that a grandparent had gotten me and he like asked me if they could like cash it and have it. And I'm like oh, man. six. So I'm like, sure, fine. And I knew that like, whoa, that must've been, that must've sucked. Oh no. Like he must've felt awful. Oh God. And then there's, there's another thing like later on where he's showing me like his pay stub and trying to like put money into context for me because like as a, this was like 11 or 12, maybe, you know, your main experience with money at that point is still like, an allowance if you have one, which I didn't, and like birthday money, which is yeah, uh, which is a limited resource <laughs> and totally um, unpredictable, and like you can't, you don't know what birthday money might as well just go away, like 
Just spend it on action figures because you can't invest it. You've already got you've got such a long list of things that you like to have that birthday money is just like in and out. Like, it go- boom, it's gone. Yeah, you've spent the last month coming up with a birthday gift list and you know mm. birthday money is just getting spent all the things you didn't get. On the get. stuff you didn't get, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, a lot of thoughtful comments and stuff on last week's episode, which we thank you guys for. We We read all of them. Um, we just don't have time to get to all of them on and air. And if you want to talk more about this stuff, like let's let's do it because I know Craig and I are trying to think about ways to like help in some way with the show, which I don't think we're ready to like talk about at but we'll, length yeah, now. Yeah, but we're close though. Yeah. Um, and the both the Facebook page and the Goodreads group, which we haven't mentioned in a while, are are great ways to continue having a conversation about stuff like this from the books, even if it's um, even if it's just talk for the time being. Uh, Andrew, yo. I was reading about the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the book. Okay, and good job. He, I know, good job doing I didn't the research re- that's I required didn't of you. Read the, the book, uh, but I did find out that he wrote it in 1829, or mm-hmm. he started writing it in 1829. Mm-hmm. Now, at that point, this uh, cathedral, the Notre Dame, which was built in like the 12th century or started in the 12th century and finished two centuries later, basically mm-hmm. had gone through a couple periods of people coming in and being like, this is too much of a church. Bang, 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 break it yeah. all down. Yeah. Uh, mostly Protestants. And then later French revolutionaries whose religious affiliations may have been second to their revolutionary affiliations. Um, were knocking stuff down and replacing windows with plain glass as opposed to stained glass. I can't believe it. How dare they? Um, <laughs> and it's this, you know, gorgeous piece of Gothic architecture, and it's the, one of the first buildings to use flying buttresses. Um, that's my favorite my, kind of buttress. That's my only architectural term I know. And uh, Hugo's like, this is a dang shame. I wrote a paper called The Guerre aux Demolisseurs, which is the War of the Demolishers, um, about people destroying and letting all this architecture go. I got to raise more awareness. I'm going to write a book about it. Uh, I also learned that this book was set during the reign of Louis XI, mm-hmm. which surprised me that there... It reminded me how many Louis there have how been. How many Louis? <laughs> how many famous Louis can you name, Andrew? That's what the song Louis Louis is about. It's just about all the it's Louis. It's like every, every, every time he says Louis, that's a, it's a different Louis. <laughs> have they been adding to it as more Louis? Like, well, it's it's like it's like uh, we didn't start the fire. Like it's in need of an update, and people talk about it sometimes. But there's not like an official update that's out there. So who would you, I would add Louis C.K. to Louis Louis? He's new. Yeah, he's probably he's probably good. Um, Lou Reed. All right, Lou I'm Reed. Out. Yeah, that's good. Lou Reed's pretty good. I see. He's probably in there already, though, right? He's got. Did he maybe ghostwrite Louis Louis? Was it a song about him? My favorite Velvet Underground song is. <laughs> Louie Louie. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else about this book that we should know before we go in, do you think? Um, about the book specifically, just like remember, and this you already kind of mentioned this, but remember that Hugo really wanted like preservation of existing architecture to be more of a thing. Uh-huh. Like that was one of his agendas. Um, another of his agendas was like... Um, like uh, republicanism instead of royalism, which comes up a few times. Um, I don't think we're going to talk about it quite as much as like the architecture stuff, but it is in there. Um, 
Yeah, it's worth noting that some of the stuff that led to Hugo having to live in exile for a period of time in the 50s and six, 1850s and 60s, uh, that came out of the revolutions that would not take place for another 10 years after this book was written. So some of his political beliefs that endure because of, you know, and are famous for Les Mis um, and some of his other more, you know, nonfiction writings are not part of where hunchback is coming from though it is like he does still victor hugo and i don't know if you got this from lay miz but victor hugo is like the master of the burn yeah he's a good burn artist he does he's really good at burns like here's one um but it was difficult to make out whether it was a child's cap or a king's crown the two things bore so strong a resemblance to each other oh like burn burn on you kings <laughs> Every wise man's mouth complimenting another wise man is a vase of honeyed gall. Oh, man. <laughs> Which basically means that wise people neg other wise people all the time. That's awesome. He's Yeah, he's pretty insightful. He can boil it down pretty good. Yeah. Um, all right, Greg, I want to talk more about this book. But before we do, let's take a break. Okay. Andrew, did you know that this episode of Overdue is brought to you by Squarespace? Yes, I did. Okay, good. You but read tell ahead. me, tell me more. Like, what's a Squarespace? <laughs> a Squarespace is a place on the internet where you can make your own place on the internet. It could be like a Whoa. landing page or like a gallery for your photos or like a blog or a store or something. And it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy. You can uh, you can hop on. You can make really nice websites with the templates that they have. Um, you can customize your own templates with their drag and drop tools. You don't need to know any code, which Mm-mm. is great because code is boring. Yeah. And I think Andrew knows a little bit of code, but I'm still able to update the podcast on the weeks that I'm responsible for it. Yeah. Most of the time. HTML, and baby. And when it, when it doesn't happen, it's not Squarespace's fault. It's totally mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, that, is, uh, that is absolutely true. It's 100%. absolutely true. Um, I also know that if you sign up for a year, um, you'll get a free domain name, like assuming that whatever domain you want is free. Mm-hmm. Like you can't steal ours. You can't, but it ha- like it, it will be free if the domain is free. Get it? Yeah, right. I think it's kind of implied in the thing, but <laughs> you can get you can get a free trial site today um, if you go to squarespace.com slash overdue. And uh, if you decide to turn that free trial into a real big boy website or a big girl website or whatever website, um, you can get 10% off of your first purchase. Just go to squarespace.com slash overdue. Squarespace, set your website apart. All right, Andrew. All right, Craig. Who's this hunchback and where's he from? He's from Paris. Okay. His name's Quasimodo, which means like partially formed or like semi-formed. Yowza. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right? And as I said, this is the 12th century, right? This is a long um, time ago. This is taking place in the 15th century. Well, I messed it up. Never and, mind. And being written. Well, that's what I'm here for. I did the research so you don't have to. Idiot. Oh, good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It's being written in the... Um, like early-ish 19th century, about the late 15th century. Okay. Um, it sounds so, like a decent period of time. So yeah, Quasimodo is the uh, titular hunchback, yeah. the eponymous hunchback. Uh-huh. 
Um, he is disfigured. He's got like a big wart over one of his eyes and he's got a really deformed face and he's got a hunchback and one of his legs is longer than the other. And he's deaf from like ringing bells too loud mm-hmm. because he's the bell ringer at Notre Dame. Um, and perhaps predictably, he is sort of shunned by society. <laughs> yeah, I would think that at the time, people might not know what to do with that. Okay, so he's he's one of there. There are several characters of note in this story. I'm going to focus on four of them. Um, there are more than that, but I think like within the confines of our podcast, it's best to focus on the four that drive the main action, like such as it is. Yeah, if Andrew leaves out your favorite character, just let him know. A bunch of people wisely let me know that I didn't really talk about Eponine last week, and I feel a little bit bad about it, so... Get on Andrew's case this week if he leaves out your favorite hunchback. Yeah, I mean, there are some good characters like Pierre. I'm not going to talk about at all, even though he's what the hell? He's kind of like a funny, he's a playwright and he is the fuel that Hugo uses at the burn factory to manufacture <laughs> the burns. Okay. I love it. <laughs> that's a, that's. You don't even need to say any more about Pierre. We're good. Me and Pierre, we're solid. So let's talk about three dudes first. There's Quasimodo. We already talked about him, whatever. Um, There is Claude Frollo, who is the Archdeacon of Notre Dame. Okay. Um, He's Quasimodo's adoptive father. Um, Mm -hmm. He's not really a fun guy. (laughs) And people think he's a sorcerer slash weirdo because he dabbles in alchemy. But he's a deacon in the church. He's the Archdeacon. Not just any deacon. Okay. I, I think Arch is better than regular. Usually. Usually they don't add words to you as a demotion. Yeah, right. Unless it's like visiting or associate or something. <laughs> Ad, adjunct deacon Frollo. <laughs> Doesn't get any health care or anything. <laughs> um, and then the third dude is Phoebus. He's the captain of the king's archers. And um, so the thing that that brings these three dudes together is this woman, Esmeralda. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is a gypsy woman of unknown parentage. And I'm saying gypsy because that's what the book uses. I know it's not like a great term to use for a lot, most people in like the modern day. Are you looking that up right now? Yeah, it's just some I think for some people like that is actually used to describe their heritage right i know but i know what you don't want to do is be like oh i got gypped or whatever like that's the no stuff that you and don't the say, other term that i'm seeing as i do some casual research is romani uh, oh yeah romani yeah, yeah. people there you go which might be the actual like politically correct or just accurate word to use yeah um but in the context of this book it is useful to use gypsy yeah, we're so. gonna say gypsy um Here's the deal is like she's real pretty and basically every dude who crosses her path falls in love with her. Okay. With disastrous results. Oh, good. Um so all right. So let's talk about Quasimodo some more. He is um he is put on trial um partially I guess for manhandling Esmeralda. Um but what he's really sentenced for is because he is deaf and he can't hear the person who's sentencing him and the person who's sentencing him is also deaf. And there's just like this weird sequence of events where Quasimodo's sentence keeps getting extended because of misunderstandings. Like some sort of Abbott and Costello. It's like routine. a little Friends episode, like in yeah. the middle of this. Um, and so Quasimodo's getting flogged and whatever because of this punishment. And Esmeralda has pity on him when he asks for water and comes and brings him water. Okay. And so Quasimodo loves her after that. Um, 
even though like in the first place he was in trouble for interacting with her yeah like cool. he didn't there he kind of forgets the cause and effect or like just doesn't focus on it he being hugo you mean he being quasimodo oh okay and i guess hugo by one in the one in the same sure um (laughs) phoebus is he falls for esmeralda because she's pretty and she also falls for him too because he saves her from quasimodo in the first place okay and we find out like pretty early on that she wants a man who can protect her Okay. Does she not have people? Like, is she just on her own? She is. She is. There's like this sort of thieves guildy, thieves denny part of town that she hangs out in mostly. Okay. Um. But she, yeah, she's mostly like a street performer and and doesn't. Yeah, like I said, of unknown parentage, which does factor into the story like later on. Important. Okay. But she is just her by herself pretty much the whole time. Sure. So she and Phoebus like are in lust for each other or at least like phoebus just wants to he just wants to clown okay she thinks she loves him and he just wants to get laid so they go to like a a flop house to flop but um claude is there too Mm -hmm. because he like followed them and he's all jealous because he likes esmeralda too because she's so pretty Mm -hmm. and so okay so here's the order of events that drives the main action is Claude stabs Phoebus. Oh, man. It gets pinned on Esmeralda. Uh-oh. She is accused of killing Phoebus, even though he doesn't actually die. <laughs> but he, he doesn't, like, come forward to try and protect her because he's already moved on to somebody else. So dead Phoebus is going out looking for more ladies. Yeah. Okay. And so she's about to be hanged when Quasimodo like jumps down Notre Dame because he's so good at like climbing up it because he just knows it like the back of his hand. And he grabs Esmeralda and he yells, sanctuary, sanctuary. He takes her inside and this is like to protect her. So under the rules of sanctuary, I guess, like she's fine as long as she stays in there forever. Or unless there's like an exception made, like a law or a mob just like depending on your circumstances. <laughs> so were they going to hang her like on the steps of Notre Dame? Yeah, like pretty much in front of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's hilarious. And the church the church is just like, "Yep, come on. Let's and go." That's just how you that's how you punish people. You hanged them. Did you ever play games of tag where you like you had a base that you could hang out on and like as long as you didn't like like a, if you were touching a tree or something, you were safe? I think ever, yes, but too often that led to standoffs that kind of defeated the purpose of playing tag. Yeah. You were just standing around talking and touching a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That just sounds like a picnic. What was your favorite tag variant of all the tag? Did you like freeze tag? Like what, what kind of tags did you like? I like a good freeze tag. Mm -hmm. Um, cause you always get stuck in weird positions. Mm-hmm. And you, you're that's just awkward for people. Mm-hmm. I also like a good game of jailbreak or manhunt or whatever you want to call it. Where like if you get Which tagged, you, jailbreak? Have, you like have to go to a specific spot. Okay. And everybody who gets tagged goes there, and whoever's like it has to round everybody up. But if someone can make it to the jail, they let everybody free. Oh, I don't really remember how jailbreak ends. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound it like, like it's designed to end. 
Did I not mention your favorite version of tag, Andrew? No, no, you got it. You're good. What about that one where like you get to sit on the ground and you're like an octopus and you get to wave your arms and tag people? I don't know that one. That just makes me think of crab walk soccer. Oh, let's play crab walk soccer. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's do that. Um, okay. Let's, but let's first let's get back to the podcast. <laughs> We're beating all have, Victor Hugo over here. Do you have anything to ask about this like dramatis personae that I just read? Can you just remind me? Is Claude a good guy? No. Did we ever think he was His, a good guy? It's we. I think we're meant to think like up front that he's a good but stern guy. Okay. But it's it's quickly noted that his like love for or lust for Esmeralda like physically ages and corrupts him. Oh, like man. there's a lot of like external chains going on okay. as a result of him having this like creepy creepo forbidden love. How very Dorian Gray of him. <laughs> right. And like there's there's one point after Esmeralda has sanctuary where he where he Claude tries to get with her. Mm. And it's dark, and she blows the special whistle that Quasimodo gave her because, like, they, she thinks he's ugly. Like, there is no chance that she is going to think that he's attractive. She's still hung up on Phoebus, um, but they form like this, this sort of mutual respect, kind of or friendship, almost. Yes. And so he leaves her this whistle that she can blow because he can hear the tone that it makes. And she blows it in the dark. He comes in and takes this figure off of her and then discovers that it's his adoptive father and has a complicated reaction to it. Okay. Yeah. Which only which manifests itself later. And this is, is there language as he's describing either Quasimodo or her or any of them that has that kind of Physi- is it physiognomy or physiognomy or whatever? And he talked no a lot about it. What you're talking about in Les Mis, it's the idea that your actual personality and moral character is reflected in your physical appearance. There is some of that, but there are also kind of some anecdotal things that try to tell, like uh, there's more to you than what's underneath. More than meets sort of the thing. eye. There's more than meets the eye. So that so Claude is an archdeacon, but he's a jerk. Okay. Quasimodo okay. is ugly, but he sometimes, I mean, like a lot of the time he's portray- portrayed as pretty monstrous and especially like in the, the end game of the book. Okay. He's pretty monstrous, but, um, but yeah, and the way that he helps Esmeralda and like the way that he really likes ringing the bells, like you see this sort of like misunderstood interior personality that he has that nobody else really cares to try and dig up. Sure. Sure. Um, and there's this, there's like this whole thing where Quasimodo is trying to convince her to like him more where he like leaves her this pretty glass vase with flowers in it, but the vase has like a crack in it. So all the water gets out, but then there's this like ugly earthenware vase that holds all of its water. And so the flowers are still pretty. And do you get it? I, I think I get it. Like the pretty, the pretty thing might not always be the thing that works best for you interesting it is interesting now is there more to her than meets the eye it's unfortunately she is mostly used as motivation for these other dudes Um, okay now there is a running plot that gets tied together at the end 
where um so as in Les Mis, like we talked a few times about how Hugo likes to distract himself from the action of the book to talk about other stuff. <laughs> yeah, not distract the reader. He does actually, I think, distract himself. I yeah. think he gets a little encyclopedia brownie and just kind of starts ranting and raving. Yeah, so there are two big areas where this happens, which we can talk about in a minute, but there is one like smaller diversion that he takes kind of in the middle of the book. Mm-hmm. where um, this one townsperson is telling this other townsperson about this woman who, like, the gypsies took her baby. And it turns out that the the lady is still there, like, locked away in some cell where she has her daughter's baby shoe and and secretly hopes that she's still alive. Okay. And, um, and yeah, so that that's kind of presented as a diversion. And, again, like, Victor Hugo, King of Burns... Um, has the person telling the story who keeps getting sidetracked and takes forever to get to the point um, she tells the person she's telling the story to what would be left for the end if all were in the beginning so if I told you everything up front instead of getting caught on this weird these weird rants like what would you have to look forward to basically that's awful (laughs) so wait who is the narrator you, you said she. Is there a frame device that we haven't I mean, talked she's, about? I mean, she's the narrator of this story. The narrator, I think, is pretty much the same as it is in Les Mis. Like, periodically, oh, okay. there is a voice that will be like, oh, you, you the reader, will certainly have noticed by now. Like, oh, blah, blah, okay. Blah. Yeah. You, meant the, you meant the character telling that particular story. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's what I meant. Um, so how, wh- how does this progress? How does this situation complicate? So and- it turns out that Esmeralda wears a necklace that has the other baby shoe in it. Ah. And she was the daughter all along, which how is small. Wait, heavily foreshadowed. They're how just little s- baby shoes. Have you seen a baby foot? Could you wear that on a necklace, though? Yeah. yeah, I guess you could. Baby feet are little, little, little. Yeah, you just held a baby over the weekend. I did. I held a baby like yesterday. Oh, that's when's cool. the last time you held a baby? It's been a while. That baby was like two months old. That's a wee baby. I talked to it about the 2016 election, and he smiled at me. Did he offer any insight? No, but I mean, that's pretty much like par for the course for most political correspondents. Yeah, I mean, he did spit up a couple times, but it's fine. It was fine. So you get for talking politics with a baby. Mm -hmm. Anywho, anywho, what next? What next happens in the book? Okay, so do you want to talk about diversions? you want to get diverted for a minute? Yeah, let's get diverted, because this was a pretty memorable set of sequences in Les Mis, and a lot of them had to do with the history of revolution, some of the battles that were pertinent to the characters in the book. It had to do with the social strata of Paris, and of course it had to do with the poop tubes. So mm-hmm. what is his jam in this book? There are two big diversions. They're mostly up front. There's one that's mostly about the history of Paris, which is sort of interesting. And it gives you, I don't know, it gives you a kind of a neat sense of history because Mm -hmm. we are about as far removed from Hugo as he was from the time that he's writing about. Interesting. Okay. So he's not like firsthand, like right there telling you about 15th century Paris, but it's it's interesting to see like people taking taking time to look back. 
in a time that we already are looking back at. Yes, 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 yes. Right. I find yeah. that interesting. Okay. Um, the more the more interesting one, I think the one that's that will we will have a better conversation about is something about um, like the humanity's preferred art form, basically. Huh. So the nut the nutshell of his like in a nutshell his argument is that. Um, quote, the invention of printing is the greatest event in history. It is the mother of revolution. And basically that printing killed great architecture. um, People have like knocked a bunch of stuff in Notre Dame out, like knocked down a bunch of the religious imagery. And, you know, Hugo says basically that like time and revolution, like are the things that damage buildings mostly. (laughs) and yeah um, no 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 and now that now that humanity has this this newer easier arguably like just as permanent or even more permanent way to express its ideas it does not need to express them through architecture and so the art of architecture at least in hugo's time is suffering so he talks about um, Notre Dame is a Gothic cathedral. Cathedral, I think we said Renaissance last time, but I don't believe that's true. Um, I think we said Gothic this time, but maybe no, I mean Renaissance Gothic last is week. correct. And Renaissance sure. is not. I just want to make that clear. Yes, but, um, yes, yes, yes. Uh huh. But yeah, he's he's seeing kind of people come through and do these like rough patch jobs on stuff and like knocking down older buildings that have like some actual architectural forethought into them for like these dumpy little buildings with just like crappy domes on top because people don't want to like, and, and he, he says architecture, like it requires this, this group effort and it's like, it it needs the work of like an entire society to design it and then, you know, get the materials and then build it and then maintain it. And once printing became easily uh-huh. accessible, which it had not quite, like it, it, the printing press was still like a new invention at the time that the book takes place. But Hugo, you know, by the time Hugo is writing, of course, it's it's widespread and it's everywhere. Um, yeah, yeah. And Hugo says, um, let's see. Uh, when one compares thought forced in order to transform itself into an edifice to put in motion four or five other arts and tons of gold, a whole mountain of stones, a whole forest of timber work, a whole nation of workmen. When one compares it to the thought which becomes a book and for which a little paper, a little ink and a pen suffice, how can one be surprised that human intelligence should have quitted architecture for printing? Cut the primitive bed of a river abruptly with a canal hollowed out below its level and the river will desert its bed. Hmm. I like um, it. I'm so yeah. into this argument. I kind I kind of like it a lot too. Um, but practically beginning with the 16th century, the malady of architecture is visible. It is no longer the expression of society. It becomes classic art in a miserable manner. From being Gallic, European, indigenous, it becomes Greek and Roman. From being true and modern, it becomes pseudo classic. It is this decadence which is called the Renaissance. I so basically, yeah, it's pretty cool. Like so, basically, once people just start like rehashing stuff for like lack of better ideas i guess well but ah this is great oh i wish i'd read this 
chapter. We just talked talk about this for an hour. There's a, then there's I can read you another paragraph unless you want to just. I want like, to I want to react quickly. Hold on. Okay, react quickly, and then I have another one. One of the things like, I yeah. find fascinating about this is uh, this being a church, also right. And one of the reasons that stained glass existed in church and and the pictures in them is to visually represent the stories in the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. So. At that at this point in time, pre-printing press, the large number of people coming are illiterate, um, or at least are not able to read the Bible because it's written in Latin, um, not your local language or whatever it might be. So you go to the church, you can't read the stories, you can't read the tales. The those those stories are then reflected in the big room you all said you would build. Or the right. king, or the king <laughs> commanded you to build, and you gave your tax money so that you wouldn't get killed by the king's knights or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, your community's building reflects the, or at least attempts to reflect the values of those stories and includes those stories in them. Um, and once you have this other way to communicate those ideas, ah, that's so smart. Um, yeah, and Hugo specifically calls out like the transition from stained glass to just regular yeah. glass. And and that like the at this point we kind of people who like stained glass revere it for the craftsmanship and and the beauty of it from an aesthetic point of view. But I don't think that it holds the same value in terms of communicating ideas. That it probably no. did to the people who were there when the stained glass first. No, showed it's, up. it's more. I think it's more strictly decorative, <clears throat> um, and like commemorative. I guess sometimes. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, um, oh, that's fascinating. And then, okay, so here's the other. Here's another component of it that I think you'll like is um, uh, nevertheless, from the moment when architecture is no longer anything but an art like any other, as soon as it is no. As soon as it is no longer the total art, the sovereign art, the tyrant art, it has no longer the power to retain the other arts. So they emancipate themselves, break the yoke of the architect, and take themselves off, each one in its own direction. Each one of them gains by this divorce. Isolation aggrandizes everything. Sculpture becomes statuary. The image trade becomes painting. The canon becomes music. One would pronounce it an empire dismembered at the death of its Alexander and whose provinces become kingdoms. Hence, Raphael, Michelangelo, Jean Goujon, uh, Palestrina, those splendors of the dazzling 16th century. So he's basically saying like the art boom in the Renaissance happens in part because they the, all those, those people don't need to be worrying about buildings anymore. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, it's kind of a neat argument, right? It's a great argument. Again, I will, I will. He's make he's in that particular chunk. He's not reminding us that he's also talking about uh, widespread literacy and what that does, and and also he's talking about architecture vis a vis a church, which mm-hmm. post Martin Luther has a whole lot of different. It has a different relationship to the state. Yeah, though I think you'd, I think he's, I don't think you'd be amiss if you said that most architecture that people put that degree of effort into was like a church or done for religious reasons Uh just because like there weren't that many like huge secular buildings. I I mostly, or not as many. I'm mostly saying that he is implying that. I don't think he's saying it explicitly because he doesn't have to. Sure. Um, Yeah. Because he's right. Like the way that music was treated up until the Renaissance and then especially into the Romantic era, it was woven into and all the music that we have from that era for the most part 
is religious, um, or at least drawn from religious tradition. It isn't until like the turn of the 20th century that we get like folk music codified and written down, even though mm-hmm. it existed. Um, oh, that's fascinating. What a smart <laughs> dude. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And um, it's it should be said that in 1845, so a little after, a little more than a decade after he wrote this book, um, there was a restoration project uh-huh. for the cathedral that I think a lot of people attribute in part to this book because it, sure. it did like um, reignite interest both in this building in particular and in maintaining and properly appreciating older buildings. But Did you know that there is a bell in Notre Dame that's been there since 1681? That's crazy And it's, its name is Emmanuel. Is there anything like there's hardly anything over here that's been around since 16 whatever. No, there when you were talking about the beginning of this section, I was reminded of like an Eddie Izzard bit where he talks about just running into castles in Europe all over the place <laughs> and in America it's like, "Oh, it's 50 years old. Tear it down and put it in a car park." Like we're just, we're done with it. Yeah. It's right. as old as my mom, like light it on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking about this going into this book, Andrew. Is there I have like my this book's version of the what is your experience with poverty question though it's far less of a bummer do you have what is your experience with buildings well, sort of like <laughs> is there a building or a piece of architecture that you have any particular affinity to for and that's a two-part question like one just do you have a strong memory of a place that you like an actual thing you like being in or or near and does that have any particular attachment to the building itself from an aesthetic point of view, or is it really just the memory you've attached to it? I really like just that, the feeling of walking into Grand Central Station. Ooh, good one. That's a pretty cool building. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's all like Quiznos and Apple stores <laughs> and stuff on the inside, like they've still, they've worked around the architecture in a cool way and it did not like suffer the fate that the old Penn Station did like back in the 60s uh-huh. where they leveled it and put an ugly basement <laughs> where it used to be like an ugly train basement <laughs> so, that's pretty good yeah so I have I have a certain amount like I, I it's not like a thing that I think about all the time but it's really I think it's a really iconic building and if you see a picture of it you like know what it is like it's easy to know what it is yeah i don't know that i have an answer for like the particular inside of a building that i have a lot of affinity for Mm -hmm. um i have you know a lot of i'm struck by uh you know older american colonial era you know i'm from this area in philly and i have a lot of reverence for that era in american history so i'm a sucker for cracked bells yeah i'm a sucker for broken bells really uh, it's also that was a <laughs> it's cool, also your favorite it's band. a cool band <laughs> um i you know I, I dig all the stuff in old city and, I, and i'm a sucker for like early 19th century american buildings um but all of those are like borrowing from other weird eras of in european traditions so like who knows what i'm actually interested in <laughs> It's just, yeah, like it's all some sort of weird, like bastardized Greek column yeah. design, sort of. <laughs> so we've been talking about this building a lot. Like, how does it weave into the actual story? Because I know the original French name of this book was just Notre Dame de Paris. Like, it was named after 
the church it, the they had to like convince him to put the word hunchback in the title i mean it's, it's certainly the anchor point i mean it's it's where to uh, is where your like primary protagonist and antagonist live mm-hmm. it's where most of the like story driven part of the book takes place or like the the nut of the story really takes place yeah yeah um there's a lot more of it that takes place outside like it you know both begins and ends sort of outside okay okay more or less um yeah and it's just it's it's and and quasimodo has a lot like he has affinity for the bells he has affinity for the building itself and the gargoyles because he like talks to the gargoyles and he knows how to climb up and down the building all over the place like it's just the it's the hub of the of the story really so what we haven't talked about is how the priest goes full bad guy yeah let's slide into the end because it goes full bummer like this is when i realized that it was not like the disney movie <laughs> oh this is when you realize this is when i re when i really came home so there is a kind of amazing cool action sequence that i was not expecting yeah uh, about like 80 percent of the way through the uh-huh. book where a mob has come to execute the gypsy woman mm-hmm and Quasimodo is basically defending her from the top of Notre Dame single-handedly. So he throws a big wooden post down, and then he starts throwing these big rocks down, like and stones and stuff that they were using to work on part of the building inside. Um, he melts a bunch of lead hmm. and just sends molten lead yeah. flying down onto the heads of his assailants. Oh, like he, man. It it's pretty cool for a bit, and then Hugo totally kills it. He totally wrecks his momentum by switching to some dumb story about like Louis the <laughs> Eleventh being a crappy king. And I think it's more of a commentary on royalism than I really am prepared to talk about. Okay, probably. Okay, but yeah, it's like Quasimodo just totally ending everybody. Like he. <laughs> Like he goes like somebody, full somebody like John climbs, McClane. Yeah, like they they try to climb up a ladder and he pushes the ladder off and kills all the people on the ladder. There is someone who made it up the ladder and shoots him with a bow and arrow, and Quasimodo just like ties him on a rope and like dashes him against the side of the cathedral Whoa. and kills him. It's really yeah, it's really like diehardy. <laughs> Where his devotion to this woman who doesn't, who's not that into him, okay, inspires him to kill a bunch of peasants, and all these people are coming in to get her out of there or kill him. Yeah, I mean, ostensibly, okay. some of them are just there to loot. Sure, but yeah, I mean, they want to get her out of there so that so that she will die. Okay. So yeah, one kind of begets the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's happening. Then there's that little aside with the king. Um, Esmeralda escapes briefly is uh briefly reunited with her mother who they just discover they discover each other really close to the end um but she rebuffs claude one too many times and he hands her over to the authorities um they i mean like they take her and her mother who is like clinging desperately to her and her mother falls back on the pavement and is killed um esmeralda is hanged Quasimodo knows what Claude did and pushes him off of the cathedral where he 
dangles from the edge precariously for a while before falling down, hitting a roof, and then hitting the street. Um, what else? That's that's. I mean, those are the characters I talked about, and then Phoebus. Uh, let's see here. I have a quote for Phoebus. Okay. Uh, Phoebus also came to a tragic end. He married Womp Womp. <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Quasimodo disappears, but they find his skeleton clinging to Esmeralda's skeleton in a big pile of skeletons. And when they try to disentangle their skeletons, his disintegrates. The oh, end. God. The end. Everyone dies. The end. Cool. That's a great. Yeah. So yeah. And then there's a little aside thing at the end again, like after you find out that everybody eats it, where Hugo is talking about those two big long diversion chapters uh-huh. and how they apparently weren't like in the original printing of the book but he totally intended for them to be there the whole time and he just like <laughs> he added them back in as soon as he found them and it really is meant to it's not meant to shore up or fix the book in any way it's definitely it was definitely supposed to be there the whole time um the book once published, the sex of the work, whether virile or not, has been recognized and proclaimed. When the child has once uttered his first cry, he is born. There he is. He is made so. Neither father nor mother can do anything. He belongs to the air and to the sun. Let him live or die, such as he is. Has your book been a failure? So much the worse. Add no chapters to an unsuccessful book. Is it incomplete? You should have completed it when you conceived it. Is your tree crooked? You cannot straighten it up. Is your romance consumptive? Is your romance not capable of living? You cannot supply it with the breath which it lacks. Has your drama been born lame? Take my advice and do not provide it with a wooden leg. Whoa. <laughs> so yeah, that's his last, his final, like putting everybody on blast. Like if, you're, if your thing sucks, don't try and make it not suck. You should have just made it not sucky in the first and place. And yet he's claiming that he totally is not doing that right now. Yeah, okay. he's claiming that his book was supposed to be like that the whole time. And he would never do that. No. Because he, like, look look at me. I know, I know, I know how to make a good book. I'm Victor Hugo. Now, what does this story about a hunchback and a lady who everyone loves, an evil priest and some dudes named Claude, like... Why? How is that going to spur a bunch of national interest in this cathedral? I think people are interested in the drama, and the drama takes place at the cathedral. That's mostly it. It's like how everybody tries to go and see, like the Seinfeld restaurant or the pizza how the pizza on the roof of the Breaking Bad house. Yeah, right. Like, don't throw a pizza on that old lady's like people, room. People see a thing in art that they like, and then they want to go see the thing. Okay, so he's not like trying to weave in like if only we'd kept up this church then maybe the hunchback wouldn't have hugged that lady's bones until he no, fell apart he, no he has two points to make one is here's a story about a bunch of doomed people oh and one is the building that this is taking place in really has seen better days <laughs> so that's pretty much that and he doesn't like try to explain why those people are doomed does he i mean does he have like a does he have like a moral point no i don't not really we're done okay (laughs) 
I could see that you're he dumb. Probably, he probably does, but you know, let's 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 let the let, let's leave the listeners something to think about. <laughs> okay, one to grow on. If you let this one grow on you, and you want to email us in, and what if you want to email us and tell us what you think, you can do that by writing in to overduepod at gmail dot com. That's where we found those emails that we read at the top of the show. We just found them there. It's weird. Um, yeah, they just showed up. You can, they were left on our doorstep, you can much like Quasimodo. Also reach out to us uh, via social media. That's facebook.com slash overdue pod or twitter.com slash overdue pod. I want to thank Catherine, Virginia, Melissa, Elam, Taylor, Bunbury, Annie, Terry, Nora, Rebecca, Emily, Caston, Found, Sophie, Lucas, Maria, Zizwina, Brittany, Hannah, Melissa, Susanna, Josh, Philip, Allie, Jennifer, Ricky, Sam, Michael, Stephen, Albie, Alex. Woo! That's a lot of people uh, talking to us about the stuff that we make. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want to thank some of our recent Patreon supporters. Andrew will tell you about that in a second. But without them, yeah, we wouldn't have been able to do our most recent bonus episode on Eat, Pray, Love, which you go listen to. So yeah, Our wives did it, and it's pretty cute. It's, pre- it's pretty good. I learned a lot. And it's, and it's a good episode, too. Uh, I want to thank Melissa, Ellie, Maria, Grace, Molly, Megan, Kate, Russell, Marianne, Michael, Corey, and Rob, and the countless others who support us week in and week out. Andrew, if people want to find out more about the show, where should they go? Uh, they should go to OverduePodcast.com, a website that was created, by the way, in Squarespace. <laughs> um, up there, you can find iTunes, RSS, uh, and Stitcher links. And now I just added, uh, last week, I think, I added a link to the Google Play Music Podcasts. That's a lot of words. Section, <laughs> which is the official name of the store. Um, you can use all of those services to subscribe. If you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us. Uh, we cracked the top 50 in arts podcasts over the weekend. Yeah. So we are, we are a fixture on the charts in the literature section, which is a subsection of arts. But now we're climbing up that other chart. Every once so in a you, while, Terry Gross can hear us. Just like hear yeah. us shouting from like yeah, 10 we're blocks away. Our, we look in your rearview mirror, Terry Gross. There we are. We're going to get you. <laughs> going to get you. <laughs> <laughs> um leave a, leave ratings and reviews and those those help us catch up the terry crows uh we have links like craig said to our patreon project uh you can also find that at patreon.com slash overdue pod links to headgum our podcast network spreaker our podcast host um a list of episodes for new listeners that you can recommend to people who are trying to get into the show um anything else no next week i will be discussing a book i'm reading called the dark is rising is that what it's called yes it's the dark is rising from the dark is rising series which is really confusing to me it's by susan cooper yes and it was a patreon recommendation so if you it's got like a cool demon horse it's it's a pretty cool book so far actually i like it a lot uh and if uh you want to get a book towards the top of our pile you can donate at more than five dollars a month and get that done that's it andrew we're done here that's it. All right, everybody. Try not to like, fall off any buildings, I guess. And until next Monday, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.